At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Built for More, Church Beyond the Weekend, where we will see what the Psalms teaches us about how life is enriched when we live and serve in community with our church family. Good morning, church. Good morning to the rest of you. My name is Abraham Phillip, and it's a delight and a pleasure to be here this morning with you. I was not scheduled to be here this morning, but uh, Steve Zarelli, who was supposed to be here, was exposed to COVID. And so um, I got a call uh, late on at 10 o'clock. I was actually almost in bed, and he said, uh, can you switch me out and uh, come join me at, uh, or step me in, in for uh, me at Royal Oak? And well, I said, what do you say to Steve, right? Um, <laughs> no, Steve, you're going to have to tough it out. Uh, no. Uh, so I said, yes, and, and so here I am. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I haven't been here um, at, for service since you guys were a little building um, much further down the road and much smaller a couple of campus pastors ago. Um, but uh, I was here a couple of months ago for the cornhole tournament. Anybody there with the cornhole tournament? My brother Ed Roden's over there. He, he dragged me out of my house to, to, to do cornhole tournament. Um, it was good, good times. Uh, I lost. Uh, we lost, uh, but it was good food. It was good food, and uh, we had a good time meeting some of you and, and getting to know you and, and playing the game. <clears throat> I'm joined by my wife, Blessie, who is here with me. Um, we typically uh, travel uh, to campuses where need, they need help, and I think you're going to be stuck with me for a little bit. Um, uh, so um, we'll get to know each other a, a little better as we go along. Amen? Amen? Chippy the parakeet. Have you heard of Chippy the parakeet? If you have it, let me tell you. He, well, as a parakeet, loved life, loved sitting on his windowsill. Life was a blast for Chippy until his owner decided to clean his cage. She took her vacuum cleaner and took off the end, stuck it in the cage. And then soon the phone rang. So she turned to grab the phone, and no sooner had she said hello that she heard... Chippy had gotten sucked into the vacuum cleaner. She quickly hung up. She turned to the bird. She turned off the vacuum cleaner, tore open the bag, and there's Chippy, still alive, but stunned. He's covered in dirt and soot and, and gunk, and so she did the wise thing. She ran to the bathroom with Chippy, turned on the cold water, and, and rinsed him off. And now Chippy's clean, but he's cold and he's shivering. And, and she did what any loving pet owner would do. She grabbed a hairdryer and she blasted her pet with hot air. Chippy had no idea what happened to him. The journalist who broke that story contacted the owner a couple of weeks later to find out how Chippy was doing. And the owner said, well, Chippy, Chippy doesn't sing anymore. He just sits and stares. You know, being sucked in, washed up, blown over, can steal the song from any, even the strongest heart. Would you agree? But perhaps as funny as that story is, perhaps that's you today. Perhaps in day nine of a brand new year, you're sucked in, washed up, blown over. That this year isn't how you thought it would go that you've started to be hit with things that you never expected to be hit with. Perhaps it's health. Perhaps it's financial difficulties. Perhaps it's a job situation. 
Perhaps it's a relationship that's been turned upside down, a relationship that has been going strong for decades, and all of a sudden this year, it's caught you by surprise. You feel a little like Chippy, and it's robbed you of your strength. It's stolen the song from your mouth, and you are left devastated. If that's you, boy, do I have a message for you today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1. We're going to start a brand new series today in the book of James. Now, I will warn you that James is a very, very tough book. Every time I have taught it, I myself have been taken to the woodshed, and I feel like I have been clobbered by a two-by-four. And if uh, you are here week after week, you will agree with me that you have been beaten up by a two-by-four. And if you haven't, it's probably because you're dead. Or you're not listening. So if you come with open hearts, ready to receive what God has for you, welcome to a beating. We're going to be in James for six weeks. James is a wisdom literature. It's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's 108 verses in the book of James. 54 of them are commands. So James doesn't waste words. He is going to spitfire command after command after command at us because he is interested in what we do more than what we say. He's more interested in what we are doing rather than in what we are knowing. And so the challenge of the book is are we living the faith that we profess? And so today, James isn't going to mince any words either. He's going to jump right in and address the problem of suffering right from the start. And what I want to leave with you this morning is the thought that mature faith survives seasons of suffering. Mature faith survives seasons of suffering. James starts his letter like any other letter in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Look at verse number one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. There are four people in the New Testament who are called James, and I won't bore you with who all of them are. I'll I'll tell you who I believe this is. Most scholars believe that this is the half-brother of of Jesus. If you disagree with me, that's okay. We'll pray for you. But this is the half-brother of Jesus. And, And if that's right, notice the humility of James as he starts this letter. He doesn't list out all of his qualifications. He doesn't lean on the fact that he's related to Jesus Hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. You ought to listen to me. No, no. He leans on, not on his resume, but on his relationship with God. James, a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is he writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, there's a trial going on before the Sanhedrin. And the man on trial is a man named Stephen. And if you remember, that story ends where they stone Stephen to death. And in chapter 8, in the first verse, you read that persecution breaks out against the church as the Jews who didn't know Jesus Christ started to persecute the Jews who did know Jesus Christ. And so as a result of that persecution against the Jewish Christians, the Jewish Christians scattered across Israel, across the Roman Empire. They were uprooted from their homes. They lost their jobs. They were destitute. They were oppressed. Some of them were taken advantage of. Some of them were taken to court. All because they professed faith in Jesus Christ. It's to these suffering, oppressed 
homeless Christians that James writes this letter to. And what does he start with? He starts with the elephant in the room. He starts with suffering. Mature faith can survive seasons of suffering. And I want to bring to you three truths we found in, find in this passage that will help us survive seasons of suffering. And the first is that suffering, suffer, surviving suffering requires a right understanding of God's goal. Notice verse number two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I have to tell you, I think James is crazy. I think he's just flat out insane. Count it all. What? Are you kidding me? Listen, I don't know about you, and maybe Roy Oak is wonderfully loving trials. I want nothing to do with trials. I want to pray it away, run away, get out of the way. I want to do everything I can to escape every trial that comes into my life. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? Nobody? Three, four, five? Oh, well, welcome. This is for you. <laughs> the rest of them can listen in. I don't want anything to do with trials. I like my comfort. Amen? Uh-huh. A couch and a remote control and a coffee. That's good. Trials? Uh-uh. And James says, not if trials come, but when trials come. You see, trials are not optional. Trials are a requirement in the school of life. And more specifically, trials are a requirement in the school of faith. So James says, count it all joy when we encounter trials. Count is a financial term. It means to add it up, to weigh it out, and to evaluate. And so when trials come, and they will, James says we ought to stop. Yes, it's painful. Yes, there's a lot of pressure. Yes, we don't know what's going on. But stop and count. Add it up. Evaluate it. Figure out what's going on. Because this trial didn't come into your life and my life by accident. He said count it, evaluate it, Add it up and count it all joy. You know, when you and I think of joy, we're way too tempted to think that joy means happiness. And it's not, is it? You've been under John Morales' teaching for years. You know joy and happiness aren't the same, right? Right? Yeah. <clears throat> happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is based on a decision. Right. Happiness is based on how I feel. Joy is something I count. Let me give you a definition of joy that I came across. Joy is deep satisfaction that comes from knowing that God is in control even when my circumstances seem to be out of control. Joy is deep satisfaction that comes from knowing that God is in control even when my circumstances seem to be out of control. That's joy. That's what James is challenging us to do. Add it up. Evaluate it. Count it all joy. We may not know what's going on, but because we know God and we know that God is sovereign, what James is telling us, stop in the midst of the trial and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I know you and I know you've got this and therefore I'm going to praise you anyway, even though I don't know what's going on because you're up to something. That's what James is challenging us to do. And so joy comes when we realize that God is up to something in our life. And so what is he up to? Well, verse number three tells us that God is up to testing our faith to produce endurance. 
Now, don't read the word testing like when you were in school and you had a final exam or, or you had a quiz. That's not the kind of testing James is talking about here. The testing of our faith, that word testing, comes from the world of metallurgy. You know, when you mine an ore, that ore that comes out has all these imperfections and all of these impurities. And if you're wearing jewelry here today, you're not wearing ore. At least I hope you're not. Because ore has all of these imperfections. It's ugly. It's unusable. It doesn't have its strength because it's been diluted and it's mixed with all this gunk. And so what you do with ore that's been mined is you put it into high heat. And you put it into high heat to liquefy it. And in that process of putting it in that high heat, all of those impurities and all those imperfections burn off. And so you're left with pure, beautiful, undiluted, wonderful, precious ore. And that's what's God, what, that, what, that is what God is doing with you and me. He's placing us under high heat, high pressure, to burn off all those impurities, to burn off all of those things that don't fit in our lives that shouldn't be there. He's trying to burn it off so that what's left is pure and beautiful. Now, some of you are thinking, but I don't have any imperfections. Uh-huh. Just talk to your spouse. And if you don't have a spouse, talk to your parents. I'm sure they'd lovingly take you aside and share with you the imperfections in our lives. But that's what God is doing. He's burning off the imperfections so that we can grow in perseverance. Perseverance also means endurance. It has the idea of bearing up or sitting up under a load. It has the idea of being battle-tested. It's the idea of standing under a pressure or a weight or, or under withering fire and not caving, not cutting and running and sticking with it. That's what the word perseverance has. So some of you this new year made resolutions. I don't make resolutions. I just break them. <clears throat> some of you made resolutions to, to lose weight and you decided to get fit. And so some of you have decided that you want to run a marathon this year. Praise God for you. Running doesn't look good on me. Never understood it. Never will do it. It's not happening. But for some of you, it's wonderful. You want to run a marathon. You didn't wake up today and go run a marathon, did you? Did you? I hope you didn't. No, you have to work yourself up to it. It starts with running 1K and then 2K and then 4K, right? For those of you who run, you know you've got to work yourself up to the marathon. You can't wake up and start because you'll collapse and they'll take you out on a stretcher. It's the same thing with perseverance. Perseverance is a muscle. It gets stronger the more you use it. And so God brings trials into our life, specifically designed for you and specifically designed for me, to grow us, to help our perseverance grow stronger so that, verse number four, that we might be found perfect and complete. In other words, all of the purpose for trials is to help our perseverance grow and get stronger so that we might be spiritually mature in Jesus Christ. And that's the point of all of these trials, that God is doing all of this work to get us to ever-increasing levels of righteousness in our lives so that when people look at us, they see a clearer and better picture of Jesus Christ in us. That's the goal. If you had any question about what God is doing in your life, 
That's what he wants to see. He wants to see more of Jesus, more of his character, more of his goodness, more of his qualities, so that when the world looks at you and he looks at me, they see Jesus better and clearer day after day. If you skip down to verse number 12, James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, if this world was all there was, I'd tell you, live it up. Go after every hedonistic pleasure and everything that makes you feel good because this world ends when you die. But that's not true, is it? This, this Bible tells us that there's a world coming, Right? There's a world coming. And because there's a world coming, it's so much more worth it to be obedient to God, to stick with it, that when trials come, to not cut and run, but to stick with it, to endure it, to persevere under it, to let perseverance have its beautiful goal of bringing maturity into our lives <coughs> so that Christ-likeness might be fully developed in us. Because when we come to that day, when Jesus splits the sky and he comes to take us home, those of us who've stuck with it, those of us who have matured in Christ, we're going to receive a crown of life. Amen? That day is coming. And while we have trials here, while we have pain here, there won't be trials then. There won't be pain then. We will be fully and finally made into the image of Jesus Christ. And I can't wait for that day. How about you? That's the goal. God wants to perfect Jesus in you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. The second truth I want to leave with you this morning, <clears throat> found in verses 13 to 15, is surviving suffering requires a right understanding of our sinfulness. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. <clears throat> then, Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What's interesting and what you won't recognize in your English Bibles is that in verse number two, we talked about trials. That Greek word is the same Greek word that is now in verse 13 translated as tempted. Meaning, trials and temptations are the same word and the way you know which way to translate that is based on context. You see, God develops a trial and introduces a trial into your life and my life to develop us into Christ-likeness. But you and I can take that trial that God sovereignly introduces into our life and turn it into a temptation. You see how that works? You see, when a trial comes, <clears throat> let's say we have financial difficulty, we might be tempted to doubt God's provision. When we suddenly lose a loved one, we might be tempted to question God's love, to perhaps even turn our back on him because he, he can't be that loving if he would take so-and-so away from us. Perhaps when we're suffering and we see the wicked prospering, we can be tempted to question the justice of God. God can't be a good God if that's the kind of God he is. And so trials that come into our life we can take and we can turn them into temptations. And James says, don't blame God for the temptations in your life. Why not? Because it's not the temptation 
that God brought into your life, it's the trial. After the first service, somebody came up to me <coughs> and asked me in the Garden of Eden, was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a trial or a temptation? So I'll just answer that because some of you may be thinking that. That was a trial. God said, don't eat it. Don't eat it. But then somebody external came in and said, hey, have you noticed that fruit? It's so juicy. It's so wonderful. It'll make you like God. The Bible says Eve looked at that tree and said, and saw that the fruit was good to eat, to make one wise, and she took it and she ate it. That was a temptation. Friends, God doesn't bring temptations into our life. You know why? Because he cannot. He cannot do to you what is foreign to him. He is holy. He is just. He is loving. He is good. There is no sin in him. Therefore, he cannot do anything in your life that would cause you to sin. It would be contrary to his character and to his nature. So then where does temptation come from? Well, if you look at verses 13 and 14, or 14 and 15, James tells us that temptation comes from right here. You see, the Bible says that the heart is wicked above all else. You don't have to go anywhere else. Yeah, there are other things and other people and other circumstances that cause us to tempt, tempt, tempt us, but mostly temptations come from right here, don't they? It's our own evil desires. And notice what, what James says here in verses 14 and 15, that we might be tempted to be lured away and enticed by our own evil desires. You know, those words come from the world of fishing. My brother Ed Roden taught me how to fly fish many, many years ago. <clears throat> and he had these boxes with all of these, this bait in it, all these flashy, spindly, uh, flashy things with tails on them that hide a hook. And he, you put it at the end of a, a line and you throw it into the water and you wiggle and jiggle the line and you get that thing to dance and all of a sudden you can tempt a fish to come out of its hiding spot and come along and, and take a bite. No fisherman would ever think to drop a nail or a quarter or a clothespin into the water, would you? Why not? Fish don't eat quarters or clothespins. They eat things that look delicious to them, like worms and flashy things with tails. And that's why a fisherman throws in a bait that hides a hook. Some of you decided to lose weight this year. And all of a sudden you go into Starbucks and there on the counter are those beautiful donuts and pastries and bagels. And, and all of a sudden you can swear that if you just listen closely enough, it's telling you, eat me. Eat me. Like you've never had a problem before, but the moment you decided to lose weight, there it is, calling your name, asking you to buy it, eat it. You see, it didn't come from anywhere else. It came from right here. We want that. It's luring us, enticing us away from our decision to lose weight and trying to get us to take a bite. And sometimes it comes. Maybe it's food for you. Maybe it's certain shows, maybe it's certain magazines, maybe it's shopping, maybe it's Amazon, maybe it's something. It's different folks and different strokes. It's different for all of us. But our heart's wicked above all else. Temptation comes from our heart. And we see that shiny, flashy thing dangling before us and we become tempted. Friends, temptation by itself 
is not sin. It's when you act on the temptation that it becomes sin. You realize that? So too many of us, we take too long to address the trial that we're going through. And that trial starts to tempt us to question God, to turn away from God, to go find solace and comfort in something else we shouldn't do. And what we do is we wait too long to go for help. And all of a sudden, that trial that was meant to develop us is now destroying us because we gave into temptation and we acted. And the Bible says that that action is sin. And sin, if you don't deal with that behavior, ultimately gives birth to death. Friends, that's not where we want to be. That's not where we want to find ourselves this new year. God wants to develop ever-increasing levels of righteousness and holiness in our lives. He doesn't want to develop death. And so what you and I, what we need to do is when we are in the midst of a trial, don't wait for it to turn to a temptation. Run to Jesus. Run to God. Run to his word. Run to him in prayer. Lean on him. Take from him his strength. Because it's only going to be his strength that's going to help you get through that trial and to keep it from getting into a temptation that's going to cause you to fail. Friends, the Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Good year to start to hide God's word in your heart. May I also suggest that if you're not part of an intimate community of believers, get into one. You and I were not made to run this Christian race or live in this world by ourselves. We were called to live together, to live in community. So if you don't have an intimate community of brothers and sisters, find one. People who can pray with you and pray for you. People who can hold you accountable, who can challenge you, who can walk beside you, who can help you through those trials to keep those trials from being temptations that will cause you to sin and lead to death. Folks, we don't want to get there. Let's find brothers and sisters. Let's find strength in God's word so that we can keep the evil desires of our heart from leading us astray from the loving embrace of a Savior who loves us. Amen? The third truth I want to leave with you is that surviving suffering requires a right understanding of God's character. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we, might, we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Instead of blaming God for sending temptation... Instead of thinking that temptation came from God, James says, stop, don't deceive ourselves. Temptation doesn't come from God. He points back to God and said, look at God. Look at how good God is. He is infinitely good, isn't he? And he compares God to the father of lights. Most likely a reference to Genesis chapter 1, where we read that God placed the, the lights in the sky, the sun to rule the day, the moon to rule the night, and he placed the stars in their places also. And every one of those things changes, don't they? The, the moon waxes and it wanes. The sun has sunspots due to increasing magnetic activity. The stars change. Everything in this universe changes. If you don't, look at the mirror tomorrow. We change. This world changes. This universe changes. Everything changes. Our attitudes change minute by minute. 
And yet in this constant changing universe, there is one constant and his name is Jesus. Amen? A God who never changes, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he never changes, folks, we can trust him. His word never fails. His character never changes. His presence never fails. His mercies never fail. Why? Because he is God and he is good and his mercies last forever. It's a great place for an amen, church. <clears throat> great place. We serve a good God who never changes. That's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust his heart, not to bring temptation into our life, but to bring trials that shape us, to mold us, to make us into Jesus Christ. And the ultimate truth of that is found in verse number 18. You want to know how good God is? He saved you and he saved me. All you have to do is look at the cross. You see, at the cross, Jesus went. All of those tears and all of that blood, and we sang that song. His wounds are the proof that he loves you and that he loves me, that he is a good God. If God can save a wretch like me, could I ever doubt that he is good? Simple answer, church, never. We can never doubt the goodness of God. All we have to do is look at the cross. James compares the new birth to first fruits. First fruits are those initial fruits and grain that you get when you plant your vegetables or when a farmer plants his crop. It's those initial set of fruits that you get. And those initial sets of fruits and, and grain that you get is a picture, it's a, it's a foretaste of the larger harvest that you're going to get when harvest season comes. Jesus or James here says that our salvation, our new birth, it's a foretaste. You see, this time of worship, this time in the word, this time of community, this time of glorifying God, this time of lifting up our voices to worship him, this is all a foretaste of a day that's coming when Jesus will split the sky. And on that day, all of what we're doing here that is distracted with sin, that is polluted and diluted, will one day be purified and whole. We will be righteous completely. We will be sanctified wholly, and we will see Jesus face to face, and our worship will be absolutely pure. I can't wait for that day. That's what James says. You see, Dane Ortland said that all of the things that are happening in our life, all of the circumstances that are happening in our life, what they're doing, they're not setbacks. They're accelerations. You see, God is bringing trials into our life to accelerate our maturity, our Christ-likeness, so that when he comes, he sees Jesus in you and he sees Jesus in me. Friends, I'm so glad you're here today. Perhaps there's some of you sitting here today who've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. I'm so glad you're here, that you've chosen to be with us. But may I just remind you that Jesus loves you. That he went to the cross, died a cruel death, paid a penalty that you and I could never pay so that you and I might have a relationship with him that we don't deserve. He was despised so that we wouldn't be. He was rejected, so that we might be welcomed in. Friends, if you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, today's a great day to come to know him by faith. It starts by saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sins. Sorry for all the mistakes I've done. Sorry for the things I've done. Sorry for violating your holy and righteous standard. Would you forgive me? And would you come into my life 
And would you be the Lord and the Savior of my life? And the Bible says, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. He will come to live in you. He will come to give you a peace. He will come to give you a strength that no matter what comes in this life, no matter how many trials and tribulations may come and intersect your way, he will be there right with you, holding you, sustaining you, strengthening you, maturing you into Christ-likeness. If you know Jesus Christ, I am so glad you're here. Friends, that's God's goal. God wants to see Jesus in all of us. Tim Keller writes it this way. He says, Jesus took that so all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into something gorgeous. Friends, that's God's desire for you. He wants to turn you into something beautiful. And that is the image of his son. He wants to develop in you his character, his morals, his love, his grace. So that a world who is desperately dying without Jesus can see Jesus and come to know him by faith. I hope that no matter what this year brings for you, you'll stay strong, persevering, maturing, knowing that God's got you in the palm of his hand. The worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing one more song. And as they do, let me just close with one more story. In 1819, Joseph Scriven was born, born to wealth, born into a good family. He didn't have it all, but he had most of things, most things. After he had graduated from university, he enrolled in military academy hoping to be in the army, but because of poor health, he had to give up that ambition, and he went into teaching. He loved teaching, and in the course of teaching, he met a young lady and fell in love, got engaged. They were planning to be married and to settle into his hometown of, in Ireland. But the day before their wedding, she drowned. Heartbroken, sorrowful, not knowing where to turn. He turned to the only person who was still with him, and that was Jesus. Deciding to put as much distance between himself and those memories, he immigrated to Canada. And there he took up teaching, and in the course of time, he fell in love again. To a wonderful young lady, and they made plans to get married. They got engaged, and just a few weeks before their wedding, she got sick. And a week or so later, she too passed away. Devastated. Heartbroken again. Not knowing what else to do, he leaned on the only person who was still with him, his Savior. A couple of weeks went by and he got a letter saying that his mother was ill, but his, he didn't have enough money to buy a ticket to go back to Ireland to visit her and to be with her. And so he wrote her a letter. And in that letter, he enclosed a poem that he thought would help bring her comfort. The words of the poem go like this. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. The second stanza says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are our constant friend, our never-failing companion, that no matter what comes into our life, you are there, that no matter what happens, 
we are in the palm of your hand. You are sovereign. You know all things. The pressure we're under, the pain we're going through, this sickness, this issue, whatever it might be, you know it. And you're with us. Help us to take it to you in prayer. Surround us with brothers and sisters who love you, who can uphold us, who can bring us to the throne of grace. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, may today be the day where you breathe a new life into the deadness of their heart, to bring them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and that we might rejoice together with them as you save another soul. And for all of us, Father, that no matter what this year might bring, that you might mature our faith, that we might be found more like you, and we will be careful to give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand and let's worship God together. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.